this moment tonight to come and to pray and to sing and to fellowship and to encourage and to study and to be awed by the greatness of your presence. Thank you for the, the warmth that we experience and the love, the encouragement, the, the, the camaraderie that we feel, feel, Father, in each other's presence and in your presence as we come together and to, 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 to worship and to, to be your community of disciples, your church, the body of Christ, a beautiful bride in this city. And we pray, Father, that as we approach this text, that, uh, that we will be humble. We pray, Father, that uh, our eyes will see and our ears will hear in order to discern it and to apply it and, and to be changed by it. And so, Father, uh, these things we ask with, with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we came back from Brazil, uh, we moved... To, to the Midwest, uh, to Lawrence, Kansas, the home of uh, the University of Kansas. And during that period of time, uh, it was the time of the Big Eight rather than the Big Twelve. And for uh, a lot of those years in the Big Eight, there were basically two teams that were very, very prominent in football. One was Oklahoma and one was Nebraska. And during the decade of the 1980s, it was it was really uh, Nebraska that uh, that was really uh, making quite a, quite a few runs at championships, uh, but there was one team in the 1980s that a member of the Big Eight Conference that every year was unable to beat Nebraska, and that team was Iowa State, and they would it was a wrestling school and a basketball school, and as a football school they would lose by these embarrassing and enormous amounts of points. And there's a bookstore there at the University of uh, Iowa State that, uh, that would always put a sign up in the window getting ready to, to play one of the other teams in the Big 8 Conference in football. And it would always say something like, like Murder Missouri or, or Cream Colorado or, or Kill Kansas State or Jolt or Jump on the Jayhawks. Uh, one year when Iowa State was preparing to play uh, the number one ranked Nebraska football team, the sign that went up on the window in the bookstore that it said, Against Nebraska, maintain dignity. And uh, <laughs> what is significant about that sign is the recognition of a hopeless situation. And it is our human hopeless situation that Paul tries to help us recognize and do something about in the text that Lloyd read. I want to read it one more time. It's a rich text. There's a lot of, a lot of texture to this, a lot of things to unpack. Let me read it to you again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our simple nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, again, this is just a a very rich text, but there is, in this text, there are two undeniable, unarguable, yet sometimes unrecognized truths. And the first one is this. Truth one, human beings are dead in sin. Twice in this text, you'll notice that Paul makes this very point in verse 1 and verse 5. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. And then down in verse 5, even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, the majority of humans believe that they are moving from life to death. And that is true from from one standpoint, from a physical standpoint, the physical reality. We are born, we live, we, we, we age, and then we die. But from the spiritual reality, according to Paul, because of our sin, we are spiritually dead and we continue to be spiritually dead. Now, that's not something that you read about in, in newspapers and in, in magazines, and, and it's not the, the subject of, of a lot of polite conversation. It's not a part of our cultural assumptions about life or even about human beings. But there are two fundamental reasons for this. The first is, to be told that you're dead in your transgressions is not very flattering. But even more profound than that is, the, is this fact that it, it's a really a truth that we learn from God, not man. Now, man may communicate it to us, but it is a truth from God. And because there are questions and doubts raised about this fundamental truth about all human beings, that we are really dead, that we are, spiritually speaking, walking that green mile, Paul gives some reasons, some justifications for that strong statement. And they follow a very easily seen progression in Paul's words. Paul's progression of thought is this. Number one, we are spiritually dead because of transgression and sin. Again, verses 1 and 5. We are spiritually dead because of transgression and sin. The truth of the matter is we're sick with sin. And our problem actually is is described by two important words in the Bible, transgressions and sins. Now, the word transgression is is a word that carries the idea of of tripping or slipping or or, or falling down. Uh, The the, the picture is is that of, of being in a very expensive restaurant where the waiters are all wearing tuxedos and they're not paper napkins but cloth napkins. And here comes the waiter out of the kitchen with this beautifully prepared and crafted meal on a tray. It's one of those places where they carry it above their heads. And as he walks out into the dining room, he slips on a, on a puddle or, or maybe a napkin that is there on the floor and he spills that beautifully crafted and prepared meal all over the floor. The steak, the baked potato, the green beans, whatever it is, is strewn about and you're thinking, what a waste. The only difference where we as human beings are concerned is that it is not a beautifully prepared and crafted meal on that tray, but it is the messiness of our life. Our beautifully God-created life that is spilled all over that floor. And that's what transgressions... It's slipping. It's falling down. It's making a mess. It's making a waste. And Paul's point is that we are incapable of carrying our lives about, and even when we insist on it, we we wrench our lives out of His hands and out of His control, and when we do that, we end up spilling it all over the floor and making such a waste of it. The second word is sin. 
And it's a word that we're very familiar with. It means that we keep falling short. We keep missing the mark. We keep getting off course. We get off direction. We end up after years and years and years of being just a millimeter off here and another millimeter off there. We're way off the mark at the end of time. And the implication of this word for our lives is that as long as we insist on managing the affair of our lives without the guidance of God, we will never get where we need to be or, 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 or to be the kind of people that we were created to be in the beginning. And so, number one, we're spiritually dead because of transgressions and sin. Number two, the proof of that spiritual deadness is in our enslavement to sin. And that's verses two and three. There was long time ago, uh, this the Virginia Slims commercial, 60s and 70s, you remember it? You've come a long way, baby. Well, not really. I mean, with all of our technology, with all of our advancements, with all of our being able to dig deep into DNA, and we're still just slaves. We're just very sophisticated ones. We're still slaves to sin. And I think that we are equally, if not more addicted and more obsessive and more weighed down as any generation before us. Paul says in verse 2, we walk according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Uh, in verse 3, he says, we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means that the norm of the world in which we live in is evil. And during the age, now that we live in, God permits the dominant themes and motifs and, and, and moods of culture to be under the dominance or the control of, or the control of Satan. Back in chapter one and verse seven, Paul says that believers are redeemed people, which is to say that they are people who have been brought out of that slavery to that kind of desire, that kind of taste, that kind of hunger and, and, and yearning. And it's not just a question of enslavement, but we ask the question, well, who are we enslaved to? In verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul makes reference to the ruler of the kingdom of the air or the prince of the power of the air, which is another way of saying Satan is a ruler, which means that he has authority in this realm or he has power in this realm in which we live. And the marks of a life enslaved to Satan and dominated by Satan is that we become enthralled or hypnotized or fascinated or mesmerized or charmed or enchanted by mundane, worldly, secular desires. Now that power that he has is not, is not overarching power, it's not ultimate power, it's not power over God. But it is a power to lure and a power uh, to tempt and a, tower, a power to develop tastes that are untoward God. It, it's a life that is developed that does not have a taste for heaven because it's too busy to use the words of Malcolm Muggeridge when he was writing about his early life in the Chronicles of a, of a Wasted Life, his biography, those years before Christ. He said it was like he was licking the earth. In another place, Paul will go to great lengths to describe those who are enslaved to Satan and to sin by Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, saying they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, of every kind of evil and greed and depravity. They are full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Because of the nature of sin, humans are dead to God and fully in support of the wishes of the king of darkness. 
which leads to the third element in the progression of Paul's thought, the result of our spiritual deadness is judgment, which we, you find in verse 3. Because of the sin, because of sin, we are sentenced. We are children of wrath, which is to say that we are the objects of God's judgment. Human beings need help to come out from under that judgment, which leads to the second truth, humans need a hero. Something very typical of Paul is that he can paint a pretty bleak picture of what it means to be lost. You know, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, inventing ways of doing evil. Uh, They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does a good job with, 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 with a wide brush of, 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 of painting the human predicament. The picture's not good. But then when all of those words that describe, we begin to start making connections with those and things begin to look hopeless, he comes in as a messenger of hope. Some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible are also some of the simplest. We're dead, he says. We're without a shred of hope. There's no way that we can dig ourselves out of this predicament that we have created for ourselves. There's no way that we can, there, there's no way that we can save ourselves, that, that, we can, that we can grace ourselves. We're dead we're, we're without a shred of hope. And then he says in verse 4, but God. He talks about us. He talks about what we're capable of doing, what we're capable of becoming, and why we're capable of that. And just when it seems like things are bleakest, the simplest of words, you are this, but God. He says in verses 4 and 5, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, by a gift, that you have been saved. What that means is that the verdict because you're an object of wrath or a child of wrath, God reverses the verdict that is hanging over your life. He reverses it. God reverses that verdict in Christ. And this is profoundly great news for those who take sin very seriously, who understand, who who are able to see the damage, not only that it does to their own soul, but does to, to the entire creation. In Jesus Christ, our sins are dealt with. Not simply in ones and twos and threes or half a dozens or handfuls, but but the whole. The whole thing. Sins of the night and day and sins of speech and thought. Sins of doing and not doing. Sins of of the flesh and mind. Secret sins, open sins, darling sins, respectable sins and gross sins of eyes and ears, showy sins and subtle sins, unexpected sins and the parasitic sins that, that dog our feet are reversed. I love the way that Jim McGuigan writes that. And there are two reasons contained in the text why we need Jesus as our hero. Number one, it's because we're in the doghouse, not in the morgue. Or it's because we're not in the doghouse, but we're in a morgue. The reason we need a Savior is not just that we're in this doghouse with God and we need to be forgiven for offending His glory. It is not because of our spiritual indiscretions that we find ourselves in the doghouse and if we are patient and if we keep our mouths shut and we don't argue and we do what we're told, then perhaps after a while, given some time, God will cool down, get over His grumpiness, and let us come back into His good graces. No, the reason we need a Savior is because we're not in the doghouse. We're in the morgue. We are dead in our transgressions. We are dead 
in our sins. We are, in a manner of speaking, spiritual corpses that walk and talk. And, it, and it's here that you know, we kind of have, have a, a brilliant revelation according to Paul in, in the first ten verses of chapter 2 when he says that you know, we are unable to do anything on our own. Isn't that number two? As these corpses, we can't help ourselves. Corpses do not have the power to help themselves. Corpses are very frustrating things. They're helpless. You can talk to them. You can order them. You can beg them to move, and they won't. You can beg them to do something different, and they won't. And the reason is that they do not have it within them to be able to make that change, to make that move. The only thing that they can do is to continue to degenerate, to go from bad to worse. But God desires to move His creation away from that. That's why He says in verses 4 and 5, but God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That verse indicates that our salvation is not an accident. That God knew all along what needed to be done and what had to be done and that He was going to do it all along. Paul says in another place, Galatians, he says that the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. In Colossians chapter 1, he talks about the, the greatness of Christ. And he says, He, the Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption which means the forgiveness of sins. And the biblical all-encompassing word for the work of Christ is provide, in providing eternal life to spiritual corpses is grace. The gift, the grace, the gift of life. The word grace carries with it the connotation, the implication, that, that, or, or the idea that it is something that God is giving to us, offering to us to accept. It's the gift that is able to do what man cannot do for himself, which is everything when it comes to spiritual salvation because he is dead in his transgressions and sins. The gift is not what man can do for himself by virtue of the fact that the way that it is received is through faith. The gift is not what we men deserve because it is received even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is given by the One who great in His love for us and who is rich in His mercy has presented it to us in Christ. And what God desires to do that we cannot do for ourselves is to make us a life which is eternal life and abundant life. It is the Zoe life, not the biologic or the bios life that you find in the original language. It is about a life that never ends. It is a life that is full. Now, one of the things that I think we learn from the book of Ephesians is that, is that God wants to bless His human creation. We're, you know, we're not to, to, to sit around like we're, we're in, in a, a, a no-win, hopeless situation, wondering you know, what's going to happen. And, or, or it's not that we're just trying to hold on and, and, and by grit and by strength of, of character and, and, and by the power of our will just kind of hold on until Judgment Day. I get the idea when I read Ephesians that God loves us and wants us to have power and love and beauty in our life. And not only to have those things intellectually, but the power to grasp the depth and the profoundness of it. And the key thought that is, you know, 
that is the recurring phrase that appears four times in the first ten verses of, of Ephesians 2 is that all of this takes place in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. All of this is in... The, we, we fight in the, the realm of, of, of the heavenlies against the power of, of, of this age and the spirit of this, of this world. And, and where we fight that is to be in Christ. And so the question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you moving from death to life? All of that depends on you getting into Christ. A poet tells a story uh, of a long-forgotten battlefield. And the day on which the, the, the savagery that was fought on that battlefield was, was, was indescribable. And that evening, there, there were two believers that were moving among the, the, the dead and the dying, and they were speaking words of comfort and offering guidance, making promises to carry messages to loved ones, and speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus and the cross to those that, as they were dying. They came across uh, in that evening a young man who was laying alone, white and, and still, and his helmet had fallen from his head. His hand, though, was still grasping his broken sword, and thinking that it was dead, they kept moving on only to hear him, as a poet tells the story, the sigh that came out. And the soldier was still alive, but barely. And so they kneeled down, they whispered to him gently and earnestly about the things of Christ. And the most shocking thing happened. While they were trying to comfort him, he whispered, Hush. Hush. And after that, it looked like all of, of the life had, had left him. But when the men whispered to him, the, the dying soldier uh, raised his, his strength to, to the level where he could whisper one more time. He said, hush, for the angels call the muster roll, and I wait to hear my name. And then based on that story he wrote in the poem, they spoke no more, but I need to speak again. For now full well they knew on whom his dying hopes were fixed, and what his prospects were, so hushed and still, they kneeling watched. Presently a smile, as of the most thrilling and intense delight, played for a moment on the soldier's face. And with one last breath he whispered, Here. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And uh, perhaps tonight, uh, in, in, in reading these, these ten verses out of the second chapter of Ephesians, You've come to the realization that you're not in Christ. That far from it, you're outside of Christ. That, that you're really of the world and in the world in such a way that, that you're enslaved to it and enslaved to the, the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And all of those things that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1 begin to describe you. And if that does describe you, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front who want to talk to you about how you get into Christ. And how Christ gets into you. And how you move from death to life. And the rest of us will stand and praise God together. Let's stand and sing.